Our text for this morning is Psalm 30. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the heading of this psalm tells us that David prepared it for the dedication of his house. The building of his house is recorded for us in 2 Samuel 5. And it's that chapter then that provides the background for the psalm. In verse 11 of that chapter, we read, Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. But there are other events recorded in that chapter also, of which this one event of the building of his house was the culmination The first event that's recorded in that chapter is that David was accepted by all the tribes of Israel as their king. Remember, there had been seven years of civil war in Israel because many of the tribes of Israel continued to support the family of Saul after his death. And now we read at the beginning of this chapter that the house of Saul was finished. Ishbosheth, the last representative of that house, was gone. And the tribes of Israel accepted David to be their king. The second event that we read about in this chapter is that David captured the stronghold of Zion and made the stronghold of Zion his capital. So we have a series of events here which culminate with the building of his house by Hiram king of Tyre. And as a conclusion to those three events, we read in verse 12 of 2 Samuel, So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. That's the background of the psalm. That's what David is talking about. That establishing of him as king over Israel for the sake of his people Israel. That is the background for this psalm of thanksgiving. Let's consider the psalm under the theme, security in the Lord's favor. Security in the Lord's favor. First of all, extolling the Lord for establishing the kingdom. That's verses 1 to 5 of the psalm. Secondly, confessing the sin of trusting in prosperity. That's verses 6 and 7. And finally, uh, calling to the Lord for help. That's verses 8 to 12. First then, establishing, or extolling rather, the Lord for establishing the kingdom. Verses 1 to 5. David begins the psalm with praise. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. And the background against which that praise is due to the Lord is his deliverance from his enemies. He makes that very clear in the second part of the verse. And have not let my foes rejoice over me. His foes had opposed him for many years, not only during those seven years of civil war, but also for years prior to that when Saul was pursuing him and trying to destroy him so that he could not become the king of Israel. Have not let, you have not let, David says, my foes rejoice over me, and therefore I will extol you. Now, David expresses the Lord's deliverance for him 
in three different figures of speech in verses 1 to 3. And we need to look at each one of those figures of speech. The first is found in line 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. The second in verse 2. You healed me. And the third in verse 3. You brought my soul up from the grave. Now that first figure of speech, that word lifted, is the word which is used in the rest of the Old Testament scriptures as drawing water from a well. We could read, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. David was in a hole from which he could not rescue himself. But the Lord drew him up from that hole as a man draws water from a well and set him again on safe ground. The second figure of speech that David uses here is in verse 2. You healed me. That word almost always has to do in the Old Testament with physical healing. And there are some commentators who say then that because it has to do with physical healing most frequently, we ought to take this as a reference to some kind of physical ailment from which David was suffering. But that's, I think, probably not the correct understanding The word is also used in a figurative sense, and we can turn to Job chapter 13 to see one of those ways in which the word is used in a figurative sense. Job is here talking to his friends who have been trying to comfort him in his affliction, and he says to them, but you forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians or worthless healers. Now it's obvious that Job's friends had not come to him to try to heal, his, to heal his physical ailments. He had physical ailments. He had been afflicted with boils, we remember. But the friends had come to him to comfort him. And he calls them in their attempts to comfort him, worthless healers. It's that kind of healing that David is talking about here. You healed me. That is, you healed me from my distress and my sorrow which I suffered during all those years of affliction under Saul and against Saul's house. The third figure of speech that David uses here is the figure of resurrection from the dead. In verse 3, O Lord, you have brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. So the point here is, people of God, that David's life was threatened by his enemies. He had not actually died, and therefore this has to be taken as a figure of speech. But his life was threatened. And it was not just his physical life that he was concerned about in the attacks of his enemies. His enemies were threatening his physical life, but in their threats against his physical life, they were driving him away from the Lord. They were seeking to separate him from the Lord, and it's that which is his concern. O Lord, you brought up my soul from the grave. You kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. And the pit there is another word for the grave, but it's the grave seen not as the doorway to heaven, as we've been taught to see it, but it's the grave seen as the place of destruction. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. All this the Lord has done to forestall the triumph of his enemies. 
You have not let my enemies have triumphed over me. Now our Lord Jesus Christ sang this psalm during his earthly ministry. And he sang it not only as applicable to his people, but also as applicable to himself. And especially we may see the application of that to our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. For verse 3, while figuratively true of David, was literally true of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord did bring up his soul from the grave. The Lord did keep him alive so that he should not go down to the pit. He kept his spirit alive so that he did not go down to destruction. And thus too, just as with David, the Lord established Christ in his kingdom. That's what's behind all this, remember. The Lord, by his deliverance from destruction, brought David into his kingdom, established him firmly in his kingdom. So that David is here extolling the Lord because the Lord has firmly established him in his kingdom. But it's all of the Lord. David claims nothing for himself. He always says here, in everything that he says, you did it. You brought me up from the grave. You healed me. You lifted me up. All these things you did, I take no credit for it myself. In verses 4 and 5 then, David calls on the saints to join him in his praise. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Now the question is, of course, why should they give praise along with David? Was not David's deliverance a personal and private matter? And the answer to that is no, it was not. As 2 Samuel 5 makes clear, verse 12, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. David's deliverance meant blessing for the people of Israel. Deliverance from a bad king, King Saul. Deliverance also from civil war, seven years of civil war. And the rule then of the man after God's own heart, the man anointed by God and chosen by God, not by the people, to serve his people. So David calls upon them to join him. But notice in what terms he calls on them. He says, give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name, or better, give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. The word name doesn't appear in the Hebrew. Give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Now we can understand very easily if David would say, give thanks at the remembrance of his goodness. Or give thanks even at the remembrance of his righteousness. When we think about those attributes of God, his goodness or his righteousness, we think about how God acts towards us. He acts towards us in goodness. He's beneficent towards us. He acts towards us in righteousness, bestowing upon us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But David 
talks about his holiness. And when we think about his holiness, we think not so much about what God is towards us, but what he is in himself. He is the one who is without spot, without stain, or without blemish of sin. He is the one in whom is no darkness of all, at all. He is the one who is perfectly, absolutely holy. And David says, give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Give thanks for what he is in himself. Don't give thanks just for what he does for you, but give thanks for what he is. Give thanks because he's a holy God. Give thanks because he's not corrupted and polluted with the sins that make our lives a misery. Give thanks because he is so spotless in his holiness, in his, all his being. Give thanks for that. But that holiness also has a bearing on his people, as David makes clear in verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now notice first that word for at the beginning of verse 5. He says, give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness for or because his anger is but for a moment. So there's a relationship between his holiness and the brevity of his anger and the longevity of his favor. The Lord is sometimes angry with us. Sometimes, in fact, very angry with us for our sins. And that anger of God against us for our sin can be very terrible, people of God. You have only to read through the prophets of the Old Testament to see how terrible the anger of the Lord against his people for their sins can be. That anger, people of God, is the flaming out of his holiness against our sins. We read in Psalm 5 about how dreadful that anger of the Lord is. Though there it's not in the context of his anger against his people, but his anger against the wicked. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloody and deceitful man. His anger is a very terrible thing. But what David is saying here is, though that anger flames out against us because of our sins, and though that anger is very terrible to us, when the Lord lets that anger loose against us, nevertheless that anger lasts against us just for a moment. Just for a moment. And his favor is for life. What does that mean then? Well, people of God, we should recognize this. And when David says a moment here, he's referring to those years that he spent fleeing from Saul and those seven years of civil war in the nation of Israel. The Lord was angry with his people. And he was angry with them because they had set their hearts on Saul. 
a man not chosen by the Lord. He was angry with them because Saul himself had been a bad king and the people had been more than willing to follow that bad king and his house for years after they knew whom the Lord's anointed was. David talks about all those years of his own affliction and of the affliction of the house of Israel under the anger of the Lord as but a moment. His anger is but for a moment. When the Lord's face ceases to shine on us and sets in the lowering clouds of the west, people of God, then comes nights of weeping. Weeping may endure or lodge better for a night. The Lord's face is hidden, darkness descends, and weeping follows. But it's all for a moment in terms of God's favor and his love. His favor is for life. For in the morning, The sun of righteousness rises with healing in his wings. And the face of God again begins to shine upon his people. And joy returns. But that's not all that's here. What we have to see, people of God, is that when David says that favor is for life, he means that that favor is present even in his anger. For his anger doesn't destroy. His anger is for a moment because it is against his saints who are holy as he is holy and whom he loves. He loved us while we were yet sinners, but he does not love us as sinners. He loves us as we are sanctified in Jesus Christ. And because he loves us, As we are sanctified in Jesus Christ, his anger, when it burns against us, does not burn to destroy, but burns as the anger of a parent against a disobedient child who must be corrected, who must be saved from the folly and the consequences of his own sins. It burns, people of God, and it burns because it is underridden and underlaid by his favor. He desires our good. That's why David can say his anger is but for a moment. But his favor is for life. Because his favor never ceases. Never ceases. Even when his anger burns most hotly against us. Isaiah 54. Verses 7 and 8 have an idea very like this. For a moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. His anger lasts for a moment, his favor all our life. And therefore, people of God, though weeping may come to lodge in the evening, joy returns in the morning when his favor again begins to shine upon us.
That brings us then, people of God, to the second point of the sermon. Confessing the sin of trusting in prosperity. Verses 6 and 7. David says in verse 6, Now in my prosperity I said, I shall never be moved. There are two ways to say, I shall never be moved, both of them illustrated in the scriptures. One way to say it is found in Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. David because he's the author of that psalm too, David is there saying that his security is in the Lord. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. He knows that the Lord provides his security. The Lord prevents him from being shaken from his place. The Lord gives a firm footing for his feet, a level path on which to walk. But there's another way to say that I shall not be moved also. And we find that in Psalm 10, verse 6. These are just examples of how this expression is used in the scriptures. It's used in other places as well. But in Psalm 10, verse 6, we we see the wicked man saying this. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. The wicked man looks around at his prosperity and his present good circumstances, and he says, this is great, and it's going to last. He maybe doesn't say that with his mouth, but he convinces himself of that in his heart. He has his trust in his present prosperity. He thinks that his present prosperity makes him secure for the future. We fall into this sin ourselves, don't we? We think that the more money we have in the bank, the safer we are. The more food we're able to put on the table, the better off we are. The more possessions with which we fill up our houses, the more happy we will be. That's what the wicked man is saying here. I shall not be moved. I will never be in adversity. And that's what David is saying here in Psalm 30, I said in my prosperity, I shall not be moved. He's confessing his sin. He's saying, I trusted in my prosperity. I thought, at least for a time, that the Lord would, that I would be safe without the Lord. That's folly, people of God. That's the folly of which our Lord Jesus Christ talks about in Luke 12. When he tells the parable of the rich fool who had a great year, an abundance of crops as the result of his harvest. And he said to himself, what shall I do? I'll build bigger barns. I'll store up my goods in those barns And then I'll say to my soul, soul, take your ease. You have much goods laid up for many years to come. Eat, drink, and be merry. And the Lord said to him that night, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. 
That rich man forgot not only that the Lord gives prosperity, but what the, that what the Lord gives, he can also take away, as he took it away from Job. That rich man forgot, as we so often forget, people of God, that the things of this world are perishing things. They are perishing things. They do not, they will not last. Not just they will not last for us, but ultimately they're all going to be burned up in the great fire of judgment. They are perishing things. To put our trust in those things, to think that our security lies in those things, I shall not be moved, is folly, absolute folly. But David is here not simply saying, I trusted in them, but he's confessing that sin to the Lord. He's saying, Lord, I was guilty of idolatry. I put my trust not in you, but I put my trust in my riches. I convinced myself that somehow my riches could provide the ransom for my soul, as Psalm 49 talks about. I, can, I convinced myself that somehow in that prosperity, I could be safe. But he's confessing that sin because he follows that statement up with, Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. So he turns back to his own history. The history that we've just been talking about in connection with the first part of the psalm. He turns back to that own, that his own history and he says, By your favor, you made my mountain stand strong. He's talking about Mount Zion, I think. Mount Zion was a strong fortress, a very difficult place for any enemy to take. It was quite an achievement for David and his men to take that fortress from the Jebusites. And it was quite an achievement even for the massive army of Nebuchadnezzar to take that fortress many years after David. It was a very strong and very defensible fortress. David had gathered there in that fortress his army to defend him. David had become a great king in his own geographical region of the world. So great that none of the enemies of Israel dared during his lifetime to attack them. His mountain was strong. But he does not say, I will put my trust in the walls of Zion. I will put my trust in the skill of my army. I will put my trust in my greatness as a general of those armies. He says, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. And what does he mean when he says by your favor? He says, he means, people of God, it's not because of anything I have done. I cannot claim this as an achievement of my skill. I cannot achieve this, I cannot claim this as something which I have deserved. I cannot claim this as something under which I have put you obligation, under which I have put you obligation for. You cannot, I cannot say that you owe me anything. It is by your favor that my mountain stands strong. Only by your favor.
second thing David says is, you hid your face and I was troubled. That too is very striking. Here's the other side of the answer to David's sin. The one is to remind himself that it is the Lord's favor that keeps him safe. The other is to remember that when the Lord hides his face, he is troubled. He may not take away the prosperity, as he did with Job. Sometimes he lets the prosperity stand. But he brings, for example, sickness. Or he brings family troubles. Or he brings the death of a loved one. Or he brings troubles in many, many different forms. And then suddenly, people of God, we see that all that prosperity can't really do much for us. He hides his face and we are troubled. The prosperity then crumbles underneath us and we see that we have been building our house upon the sand. We have been building our house of security on a bad foundation which will not stand up to the storms of life. That stands, those two verses stand at the very heart of the psalm. Half of the psalm is before, half of it after. They're right smack in the middle of the psalm, and they express the main idea of this psalm. A confession of sin, that I put my trust in my prosperity, and then the answer to that sin. By your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong, and you hid your face, and I was troubled. Those two things are the answer to his sin. One, if we have prosperity, the Lord has given it. And two, the Lord can also take it away. The Lord can hide his face from us in our prosperity. And then suddenly we see how little our prosperity can do. And verse 7 is a kind of summary also of the other two parts of the psalm. The first part of that verse really goes back to the first part of the psalm, doesn't it? Especially verses 1 to 3. There in that first part of the psalm, David talks about how the Lord made his mountain stand strong. The second part of the verse talks about the last part of the psalm, where David, in his trouble now, because the Lord has hidden his face, turns to the Lord in prayer. And that brings us then to the third part of the psalm. Confessing, not confessing the sin, that's the second part, but rather calling on the Lord for help. Verses 8 to 12. Now, in verse 8, David begins his petitions. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. There's always a problem with translating the scriptures and sometimes it becomes the expounder's obligation to explain that translations are not entire, always entirely accurate. We have several instances of it here in these few verses. The first is that the word cried in verse 8 is not the same word that you find in verse 2, though it's translated the same way. 
The Lord my God, he says in verse 2, I cried out to you, and you healed me. In verse 8, I cried out to you. Exactly the same words in the English, but different words in the Hebrew. In verse 2, the word is to call for help. There's a sense of desperation in that call for help. I cried to you. But here, the word means simply to call. There's not that sense of calling for help. You may, for example, call a person by name. That's the word that would be used here. And the idea behind that word is then simply that David is calling on the name of the Lord and hoping and expecting that the Lord will give him his attention while he brings his petitions to him. I cried out to you, O Lord, or I called to you. And to the Lord I made supplication. Again, people of God, the word here is not the usual word for supplication, but it's a word which really means to ask favor or to ask grace. It's a word that's frequently translated either with mercy or with grace in the Old Testament. To the Lord, I, or of the Lord, I ask favor or grace. And again, you see, David's expressing his sense that he cannot put the Lord under obligation to him. He cannot come to the Lord asking for his help on the basis of any kind of obligation that the Lord has to him. He has to depend entirely on the Lord's grace, on the Lord responding to him simply because he is good and kind towards those who do call upon him in faith. The third correction we have to make is in verse 9. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? The word pit, again, is not the same word that you find in verse 3. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. In verse 3, it simply means a hole in the ground. Sometimes it refers to a well, but it can refer to any other kind of hole in the ground as well. That I should not go down to the pit. And here, of course, in verse 3, it refers to the grave. But the word pit here in verse 9 has as its connotation, it's always associated with the grave, has as its connotation destruction or corruption, the corruption of the body. So what David is saying is, I cried to you, I made supplication or I asked grace of you, and now he makes his petition known. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to corruption? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? And notice that there is no specific petition there, but David's petition is implicit in his words. He's making an argument to the Lord why the Lord should respond to him and give him a favorable answer. And the argument is this, people of God, that if the Lord continues to hide his face from him, David will certainly perish. He will die his body will go into the grave, it will return to corruption, and that will be the end of him. There will be no more of him. Because the Lord has withdrawn his favor, there is no hope then of everlasting life to follow his death. He will simply go down into corruption, and when he goes down into corruption, he will no longer be able to praise the Lord. He will no longer be able to fulfill the purpose of his life, the purpose for which God called him purpose for which God anointed him as king of Israel. The purpose for which God made him one of his own people. 
If the Lord's favor continues to be withheld from him, there will be one less voice to sing the praises of the Lord. And the Lord desires that praise from his creatures. Will the dust, that is the dust of my body, praise you if you let me thus perish? Will it declare your truth? David then ends his petitions here with three very brief petitions that give urgency to the main idea. Hear, O Lord. Hear because if you do not hear, there's no hope for me. Everything is lost. Have mercy, or again, be gracious. Same word as verse 8. Be gracious because I'm utterly dependent on your grace. I cannot do this by myself. I cannot claim that I, you have any obligations towards me. You must simply be gracious. Be my helper, because I have no other who can help. The answer of the Lord to David is implied, not stated, in verses 11 and 12. The answer was indeed a favorable answer. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. God has let his face shine again upon David. And his trouble is gone. He rejoices again in the Lord his God. He expresses that joy and that deliverance in two figures of speech which are very closely related, turning mourning to dancing and putting off the clothing of sackcloth and clothing instead with gladness. Sackcloth, of course, was the Jewish equivalent of our being dressed in black when we go in mourning, or when we used to go in mourning anyway. Job, for example, when the Lord afflicted him, put on sackcloth and even sat down and poured dust and ashes on his head. These were expressions of sorrow. So there was the outward and the inward mourning and there was the outward expression of that mourning in his sackcloth. David says, you have turned my mourning into dancing. Not just he's brought joy back, but he's brought such joy back as is so exuberant that it cannot be but be expressed in the movement of the body in dancing. The kind of joy that overtook David when the ark was being brought back to Jerusalem and he danced before that ark all the way on its long journey into the city of Jerusalem and into the tent that he had set up for it there. He danced. And he danced with an exuberance of joy that could not be restrained. And the second part of the figure is you stripped off from me my sackcloth and you clothed me instead with gladness. You put on my glad rags. You did for me what the father did for his lost son when he came back to confess his sin. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. 
Kill the fatted calf. Put a ring on his finger. And let's have a feast and rejoice. And let's dance. That's the kind of joy that David is talking about here. Because, people of God, the light of the countenance of the Lord shines again upon him. The Lord has taken away all the darkness of his sorrow and brought gladness back again. But that joy is not a selfish joy. That's the point of verse 12. It's not a selfish joy. The Lord does not deliver us and give to us such great benefits, people of God, so that we may simply glow with satisfaction. So that we may rejoice in what He has done for us and be neglectful of all others, including Himself. But the Lord gives such joy in order that we may be as mirrors, flashing back to Him the glory of His great name, and flashing back throughout all the world the glory that He has shown to us in such great deliverance as He has given. To the end, He says, that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. Glory there is a figure of speech for the tongue. And the tongue is called my glory here and in other places as well because it is the chief instrument by which we glorify God. To the end, that my glory, that my tongue may sing praise to you and not be silent. And then, people of God, he closes with a vow. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So we've seen David sinning, relying upon his prosperity. We've seen him confessing his sin, mourning because the Lord has hidden his face. We see the Lord forgiving his sin and returning to him in kindness and everlasting mercy. And we see now David confessing, not only confessing his sin, but confessing the name of his God, to God's praise, and to the benefit of the world. This is the cycle of our lives, repeated over and over again, isn't it? And that cycle of our lives is not, people of God, the wheel of fate, which at one moment lifts us up, and at another moment rides over us and crushes us. That's how the ancients conceived of it. But that cycle of our lives is the cycle of our sin, of our return to God by His favor, of His mercy towards us, of His lifting us up, and of the truth, the everlasting and undeniable truth that our security is not in the things of this world, but in our Lord. Having heard the word of God, let us say Amen.